Hi, I'm Hall of Fame sportscaster Leslie Visser. I was just honored as the first woman to win the Sports Emmy Lifetime Achievement, so I've known for decades about challenging the norm. This month, In Conversation with Leslie Visser, we'll take a deeper look into Title IX, the 37 words that changed society. Fifty years ago, on June 23, 1972, the passage of Title IX radically altered sports in this country, ensuring that women would no longer be discriminated against in any federally funded educational program. In the early 1970s, I was on a high school basketball team where only two of us, called Rovers, could cross half court. Yes, only two of the then six players could cross half court. It was thought that too much exertion would damage a young girl's heart. By the mid-70s, I both marched for and wrote about Title IX. Ironically, the word sports does not appear anywhere in the amendment, but the landmark legislation recognized that gender equity in education was a civil right, and it, of course, included sports. This month on In Conversation, we'll hear from some of the beneficiaries, now icons, of Title IX. People like Cheryl Miller, Julie Foudy, Dominique Dawes, Val Ackerman, and Jessica Mendoza. I'm old friends with all of them. I hope you'll join us. Many teams have a tradition, a style to their entrance before every game. Clemson players touch the rock. Mariano will forever enter Sandman, and LeBron comes dressed in high fashion. But Julie Foudy has added one that can stir up 20,000 fans immediately, the three-clap. What? Julie, the iconic former midfielder, the World Cup and Olympic champion, and now part owner of Angel City, will have to explain it to me. Welcome, old legend. <laughs> what? The three-clap goes to the top of my bio. I love it. <laughs> what? Yes. What is that exactly? Oh my God. This is a funny story. This is how we, um, when the players come out on the field for angel city, we get the whole stadium to do this. They've now called it the Foudy three clap and they being Julie Ehrman, who's the president of angel city. She, after I was in Tokyo covering the Olympics, um, we had to do Leslie this soft quarantine when we were over there, of course. And so I was losing my ever loving mind. And, uh, I, Tariko of, of all people, Mike Tariko, who's a dear friend, he said to me, he got there early and he said, Hey, if you bring one thing, bring bands, bring these training bands. Cause you're going to go crazy. I know you, you're going to go crazy in your room, not being able to get out. So I had these training bands and I was doing these band workouts and, and I would do them every morning is how I would start my Tokyo mornings. And I would post them on Instagram and I, I didn't realize it, but I guess I start every conversation with this <laughs> three up and I'd be like, what's up party people. Good morning, party people. And Ermin, our president of angel city, Julie, she'd say, Oh my God, I love your three clap. And I go, what are you talking about? She goes, you start every conversation with the three clap. I go, I do. She was, and I, I had to go back and watch. It's like, oh my gosh, I do. That's so weird. Tell me about Angel City. You have stars on and off the field. You know, what does it validate? Oh gosh, everything we fought for, you fought for for a long time. I mean, it's it's a it's it's honestly a real full circle moment for 
I think a lot of us women who have been in women's sports for a long time and fighting for more women in women's sports for a long time, it's female majority owned and led it. Um, it has 15,000 season ticket holders of a 22,000 seat stadium already before we'd even played a game. It has, you know, 35 million in sponsorship revenue before they'd even played a game. And so it really is, um, I think a roadmap for what women's sports could look like, not just women's soccer, because it, it, it thinks, and Leslie, you know, this having lived it, like there's been so many years as athletes, we were told just shut up and be grateful. Like you have a league, you should just be happy. You have a league, which is why our national women's soccer league got itself in such trouble this last year with a lot of misconduct and abuse allegations with the coaches um, because players were afraid to speak up because they were told to be grateful. You have a league. And this is a completely different model. It, it, it celebrates these players. It elevates these players. It's, it's just nothing I've never been, I've ever been a part of in terms of uh, um, mindset. It's like, instead of be grateful, it's, Hey, we've got a blank canvas. What do you want us to build for you? And you have all these, and it's a built-in reunion for all of us players every week. We have 14 of us from the national team who come every week to cheer them on. And so that is just so much fun. It's it's fantastic. in an incredible group of female owners and owners in general, that is just so much fun. Yeah. What, what has changed that you believe this is here to stay? You've seen a lot of leagues, soccer leagues come and go. Now, you know, you have Chelsea Clinton involved. You have Naomi Osaka. You have your group in Angel City. What makes you say, no, this time it's here to stay? Uh, I I think that the numbers are supporting it instead of just anecdotal information about women in sports, right? Like we've always given, like, we just feel it. It's there. It's there's, there's attention. And we used to talk about it all the time, but we couldn't actually back it up with data. I think the important thing now is you're seeing the numbers. You're seeing it in Europe with women's soccer. You're seeing it uh, domestically with women's soccer, like the, the numbers of viewers, the numbers of in attendance, uh, the demand for merchandise. It's just like all this data is stacking up and showing that there is an appetite for this. And so what's that? what that has turned into is the institutional investor no longer just doing it because they think it's the right thing to do. All of a sudden, you see big, deep pockets, big money coming in saying, this actually is a bullet train. And if we don't get on it, we're going to miss it. And we want in. And that, and that's very different than before because they see it as not just the right thing to do. It makes great business sense. There's an upside that hasn't been tapped into because people haven't invested in it yet. Yeah, I, I always used to say the last two things that men in this society wanted to give up were money and sports. And so yeah. now, like right. what you're saying, you know, they've, they've combined it. You, of course, were born before Title IX. What was women's sports to you? I know you had a tradition of soccer in Southern California, but when you thought about women's sports in general, what was it when you grew up? Um, you know, I since I grew up in Southern California, I, I actually felt like sports was freedom. It was uh, it was my outlet to run and and jump and be around friends and and I never experienced some of the discrimination. My you know people my age. I was born in seventy one, so right before Title and I was enacted. And you have people who are fifty years old who go, I didn't have a chance to play. I had no I had no women's teams. I had no women's soccer. I had no whatever. And I'm like, wow, that's crazy because I'm the same age and we had all these women's teams in Southern California. So I think 
I, I was lucky geographically that I was born where I was in the country. Um, and I was on the cusp of, of really women's sports taking off thanks to title nine, but it was freedom for me because I got outside and I just loved to, I was a tomboy. I loved to run around and sweat and be part of, you know, this larger team and community. And that, that was my foundation for everything I did. I, I was in uh, college when Title IX was enacted, and then uh, I went to school in the East. And then, you know, we we marched for Title IX because what we learned is that ground gained is not ground secured. And so, you know, we, we'd go to Washington, we'd, we'd march for it. But uh, do you feel now that it is secured, that finally it's, it's so in our DNA now that it cannot be challenged? No, <laughs> I wish I could say that. It's funny you ask that because... We just did a, a ESPN is premiering four films on Title. It's brilliant. It's yeah, brilliant. That are, have you seen them? They're, yeah, they come. They haven't come out yet, but you've probably seen a screener of them. But we just screened one a couple of days ago in New York City, and um, and it was the the last thing I asked the two directors who have taken such a deep dive into the history of Title Nine and obviously all the different you know, the breadth of it, not just the sports element of Title IX. And I said, are you more hopeful 50 years in and having taken this deep dive? Or are you concerned that it's, you know, it's equality unfulfilled? And they they said, we're more hopeful, but there's always a but. And I, and I think that's the thing we've learned as you fight for stuff that, you know, there's inertia to the status quo. Everyone's trying to constantly push back on that and chip away at it. And it's the one thing that I think we have to be continually vigilant about. If we learn anything right now, we're looking at Supreme Court changes. We're looking at all these, you know, legal changes that could affect so many women and could affect Title IX. So there's no way I am completely confident 50 years in that it's secure. But I also want to celebrate like the, the tremendous strides we've made. We've seen the difference in numbers of women participating. We've seen the differences. I mean, there was a stat they showed in the film that 4% of women uh, in graduate schools, I think it was, or law school in 1971, when or 72, when it was passed, 4%. I mean, it, you know, Donna Deverona talks about never being able to get into law school because there was only four women who got in, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg talks about being one of four. When you went to Stanford, uh, had you, were there thoughts of what you could do afterwards or was it kind of, this is great and I'll try to play golf or tennis? <laughs> You know, the interesting thing is I was already on the national team in high school. It was the late 80s. And so you would think I would be having, you know, 300 scholarship opportunities thrown at me if I lived in today's standards. And I ended up going to Stanford without a soccer scholarship. I turned down a full ride to UNC, which is like the big program everyone went to. Our national team coach was there and a couple others, Duke. There was just a handful offering scholarships, but I really wanted to go to Stanford. So I turned out, so I went, I turned down the full ride to UNC, went to Stanford, did not get a soccer scholarship until my senior year at Stanford. And it was their first ever women's soccer scholarship. And so that was 1992, 20 years after Title IX had been enacted. And that's only because there was legislation pending from Brown University, from athletes there who had sued for Title IX uh, on the basis of Title IX and won that lawsuit. And other universities were worried they would get sued. So they started adding scholarships, but it took 20 years for Title IX to come into effect. So, um, yeah, I went to Stanford um, because I had grown up wanting to go there. I got finally that first scholarship. But I had no idea like what I would do if I would continue playing 
you know, there was no women's professional league at the time. We just had our first ever women's world cup ever. There was no Olympic. So what was the difference? Because I have to tell you, as somebody who's followed sports carefully for 45, 50 years, 60 years, I don't remember really winning you guys winning the world cup in 91. What, what changed between 91 and 99? Well, 91, I was in the middle of my Stanford um, schooling and literally I came back from winning the world cup in China. And my professor was like, where have you been? (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah. And I pissed. You haven't been here for three weeks. And I was like, I know I was kind of like winning a world cup on the other side. It was in China. And I know you may not have heard about it, but it was really amazing. We just won the first ever women's world cup. And he was like, you have two hours to take this final knock when you're done. He was like, shut up and sit down. (laughs) That is so, isn't that a stunt? Well, what, how, what happened in those eight years? Um, what happened is the Olympics happened in 96 and Marla Messing, who was the CEO behind the, behind the 99 world cup tells this story. She said, I was sitting at the Olympics in 1996 and I'm looking around and it's 80,000 people in the stands. And I'm thinking, holy hell, if we're going to host a world cup and I'm going to be in charge of it in 1999, we are going to blow this baby out of the water and we are not going to settle for smaller stadiums. So FIFA, as you know, Leslie, the governing body of women's uh, football, it's soccer in general worldwide is not, <laughs> was not really promoting the women's side of the game. So they were like, no, 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 no. We do not want to do national stadiums. We want to keep things regional, small, safe, sell them out 5,000 seat stadiums. Marla, <laughs> Yeah. Keep it small. Like, why would we go to big stadiums that will be empty? And that was their thinking. And Marla was like, no, I've seen it in the Olympics. Like this team can draw if we just put some investment behind this. I'm going to form a team. U.S. soccer is going to be behind me. And so, and of course, as players, we were like, hell yes, go big or go home. And so they fought to get it and assumed all the risks. They ended up, I didn't know that until recently. They had, FIFA was like, hell no, we're not assuming that risk. U.S. soccer said, yes, we will. So they did it in big stadiums, nationally, 80,000 seat football stadiums, and really formed a local organizing committee that for four years marketed it and promoted it and sold it. And that is that showed you the power of if you actually water the garden, it will bloom. If you invest in it, there will be an upside. There's a return on that investment in women's sports. And it was the first time I think that they really were like, see what happens when you spend three years with a concentrated effort to market this and sell this and promote it, it actually will bloom. And that was the really cool thing about 99 is no one thought we could pull that off. And we were like, yeah, we're going to show you we can. You know, it, it just occurred to me when you were saying how you came back from China, where have you been? Do you think, what percentage of your life have you spent outside the United States? A lot. Yeah, I know. We traveled abroad. I played abroad. I played in Sweden. And, you know, if it if I had been a male player, it would have been my entire life. Right. The thing with women's soccer is that really it took hold in Europe first. But women, women's soccer has exploded in the United States. And so we've kind of been the standard bearers for how women's soccer is um, is, I think, modeled across the globe because we've supported it. And that's title nine because we've had so many girls playing, right. That's definitely goes back to title nine. And so 
because of that, a lot of my opportunities eventually ended up being here in the United States. Yeah. And the game was, the beautiful game is international. It yeah. really wasn't American. So you yeah. must have, from the time you were, what, 15, traveled all over the world? Yeah. I got on the national team when I was 16. That My first trip at 16 was to China. And my mom was like, where are you going? Literally, my mom, I come home from like a trip to Cyprus, Greece. And she'd go, wait, where were you? This is like my senior year in high school. I go, Cyprus, Greece, mom, I told you. This is pre, pre-email, pre-cell phones. I told you I was in Cyprus, Greece. She goes, oh my God, I thought you were in Cyprus, Florida this whole time. <laughs> Rome, New York. <laughs> Did, um, was activism something in your family or it just was in you? I remember reading one time that you went to Pakistan to make sure that the balls weren't child labor. Uh, yeah, I yeah, I think it has been. I, it's not uh, it's not like I come from a, a, a family of politicians or activists. Honestly, it's just that this is something that always I've cared deeply about. So that was Reebok, my sponsor at the time, saying to me, hey, um, we are trying to start a factory that makes sure and ensures that child labor is not used in the stitching of soccer balls because it was a big issue back in the 90s and early 2000s. And um And they're like, do you want to go to Pakistan to check it out? I was like, heck yes, I'm in. Um, So I just always have been willing to to do it. But I think, uh, and I think, you know, my nickname is Loudy Foudy and I like to, you know, chat and I'm not afraid of having an opinion. And so that that always seemed to go hand in hand with with, uh, advocacy and which, you know, as as you get older, it's harder. And, and I still think like, God, there's so many more things we should be doing. I think journalism um, is sometimes interesting because you find yourself having to stay out of the fray sometimes uh, for journalistic reasons. And I understand that, but the advocacy ad- activist in me is always wanting to jump in. You know, you've always been uh, team first, how much we can all learn from a team. You played high school soccer. Do you lament that young girls now, they don't play high school. They play on travel teams or national teams. Don't even get me started on youth sports, Leslie. That's a whole nother podcast. And I'm going to need a lot of booze for that one because okay. <laughs> I, I'm living it with a 15-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old son. And it is crazy. Yeah, it's very different. You can't I mean, my my 15 year old tried to play multiple sports. She just started high school. She was playing soccer and volleyball and it was impossible, completely stressed out. It was like playing on four teams because it's high school and club and they never stop, neither any of them. So it's all the time there. There's just we've really done a great job of sucking the joy out of it and making it too far too intense, I think. That's true across all sports. Dominique Dawes was just telling me last week she started a club just so kids could have fun. And, and she was telling the story of how intense it was that um, her coach, who was not even considered as intense as Bella Caroli, her coach, Kelly Hill, uh, Dominique is bow-legged. She would sit on her legs to try to extend them. Oh no, youth sports is nuts. Can be, can be nuts. I know, I know. And it makes me sad, honestly, because, you know, there's just... Um, a level of anxiety we already know exists because of COVID and, and and the pandemic and all of that and teens. But on top of it, it should be this this great sanctuary you go to, this outlet. I said for me, it was my freedom, right? And the top of of, of this podcast. 
And for them, it's it's a it's a pressure. It's a I got to get a D one school. I got to get a scholarship. I got to. I mean, I never even had that thought growing up. And I mean, for all the gains we've made, and there's so much great goodness behind youth sports. It just pains me to see that we're in a place that really has sucked the joy out of it. And and it's something I think we do need to address because it should be an outlet for kids to, to find happiness and laughter rather than be stressed. Uh, you've always been somebody laughter, you know, you lead with laughter and you have the brain uh, to go with it. You were the national captain for about 40 years or whatever. <laughs> but um, tell me, um, is, Hope, is Hope Solo, who's um, talked about the toxic culture, is that more about Hope Solo or more about the national team? Mm, no, I don't think there's a toxic culture. I would say. I, I would say there's some truth, and Carly has spoke to this, Lloyd. There's some truth that as social media has progressed, and, and I think this is true for all sports, not just women's soccer, right? Like, so in our era, Leslie, there was no cell phones. We talk about this all the time, Mia, Ham, and I, and Brandy, and that whole old bags, as we call ourselves, right? Like, can you imagine if we had social media or cell phones like that, like where you had the pressure all the time of, being relevant. What are you pushing out there? What, you know, what, what TikTok are you doing? And you're watching, you know, teammates do it and thinking I should be doing more. I should be branding more. I mean, this is the pressure that's on them on a daily basis. If you're a younger athlete and there are so many positives to social media, as we know, because you can engage with fans. We've seen obviously the NIL numbers of women doing that so well and why it's so attractive for them um, from a marketing standpoint and for sponsors. But there's also this division of because it's so isolating and you, you're constantly worrying about your brand that that's that's what Carly has spoke to. And I think she says and I think there's truth to that, like it's hard because everyone is looking out for sponsorship revenue opportunities because you realize I have this small window that I've got to capitalize on and I've got to take care of it. And that can be um, a strain on team chemistry. Um just a couple last things. One, is there, and maybe this isn't relevant, but is there an intersection of Title IX, women's soccer, and the transgender issue? Oh, yeah. That's so interesting. That's a whole other podcast, but yes, yeah. it's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating, the layers on that. And it, and it honestly, it makes me sad because I think the arguments get conflated. I mean, there's this you know, there's this middle ground that's that's being pushed by you know Donna Deverona and Donna Lopiano and these icons in women's sports and Martina um, and, and Nancy Martina, Hogshead. Yeah, you go down the line of uh, Nancy Hogshead. Uh, uh, I think her. what they're looking for is just more data. Yeah, and I think I think the issue at hand is that is the Leah Thomas example, right? It's a it's a uh, a cis male who's transitioned post puberty. So Leah Thomas transitions post-puberty. She swims for three years on the men's UPenn team and is a good swimmer, right? She's made a collegiate division one program and, 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 and does well. She then transitions and does a full two years of hormone replacement therapy. So she's met every state. Yeah, she qualified for the NCAA qualified, right? She's got her nanomoles down to whatever, you know, when you the science of it. But I think the, the issue, which I think is real, is how do you mitigate the effects of testosterone, her skeletal structure, her VO2 capacity, her bone density, all of that has been established from her um, going through puberty as a man. 
And so that's the issue that I think needs to be looked at. And to your point, the science quite hasn't quite caught up to that. But what the problem is, is a lot of politics takes it. And what we're seeing in state legislator, le- legislation is they're saying, OK, we're going to ban it for all trans girls and all trans women because this is a threat to Title IX. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair to trans girls. I don't think that's fair to trans women. I don't think that's fair to women in general. I think we have to obviously figure out that piece of the puzzle of the elite athlete who's transitioned post-puberty. How do we deal with that athlete? But that shouldn't mean that, you know, a 10-year-old who lives in a state can't compete, who's a trans girl, um, she can't compete in a sport because often that's their only sanctuary. That's their, that, that is their sanity. And we're taking that away from all these trans girls. And that is so, so disruptive mentally and physically in health. So uh, that is where I'm super concerned that the two have been conflated. See, if you'd gone to medical school like you were originally going to do, you'd have all this figured out. (laughs) (laughs) No one one wants to see Dr. Fowdy, that's for sure. Uh, I'll just leave you with this. I maybe it is already in production, but I remember was it a couple of years ago? Netflix announced they're doing the movie. Where, yeah. where does that stand, and who's yeah. going to play you? Yeah, no. <laughs> Dolly Parton. Uh, <laughs> Not I, bad. Uh, I, I would like her to play me. Um, sh- you know what? It's it's the script is written. Uh, it's in the hands of the president of Netflix whose name escapes me. And once he reads it, the player's going to read it. And then I guess the, the sequence is then they hire a director and then they cast it. So we're still a good, but the script is written. And apparently it's a really good one. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but so we're probably still a good year out from, uh, from a film, year and a half, but very excited that they're actually going to make a real film about it. Yeah. And you see, you have to have someone funny, right? So I have, I have done this for you. I've done the work for you. I've decided that the young you has to be Anna Kendrick. Oh, I like Anna Kendrick. Oh, she's a hoot. Now she's a hoot. She's so, fabulous. That's a good one. She's a good. Okay. And then the I'll older you. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. And then the older one, I think, has to be Elizabeth Banks. Oh, I was going to say Tina Fey. I'll take Tina Fey. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Tina Fey. Bossy Pants. That's you. That's her book. Right. Bossy pants. <laughs> All right, love. Well, I'll sit on pins and needles until that, till I see that happen. But uh, great, really great to catch up with you. Thank you for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. So good to see you. Thank you for all the trailblazing you've done in your life and being such a legend, leader, all of it, supporter, advocate. You're amazing, Les. And that was my conversation with Julie Foudy. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer. Marissa Rivas is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And special thanks to senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. Serious XM Podcasts.